Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season two, episode 46 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. Should you or should you not build a group practice? This is part two of a topic that I started on the last episode of the podcast, and this one is a yes. That's right. I'm going to unpack the compelling reasons why you should build a group practice on today's episode. A little bit of a departure from the way we typically do things here. So get your pad and pen ready. It's sure to be a note-taking episode. Through another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee, the Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports, and we are going to be kind of picking up where we left off on the last episode. And this is around the topic of should you or should you not build a group practice? As I teased and and said in the last episode, we are decidedly of the opinion that this is not a journey for everyone. Uh, it is not for the faint of heart, and and we see a lot of uh, financial messes uh, and partnership challenges around groups that that fail too early on. It, it's hard. It's not easy. Success is not guaranteed. That being said, I think there are a lot of compelling reasons to build a group, and I'm going to unpack some of those for you today because, like I mentioned on the last episode. If you were more than five years away from retirement uh, and and walking away altogether, this has to be something you consider and consider very thoroughly. Uh, And there are a lot of compelling reasons to do it. And um, one of them is certainly to build a bigger business that's not dependent solely upon your clinical skill set and yourself for its uh, future success. And, and you would liken that, or we would liken that, to something more along the lines of a defensible strategy, building a bigger business that can withstand the competitive pressures, any threats from the outside, changing reimbursement rates or seismic shifts, the things that that are, frankly, just a, a bigger boat to be in. And I think if you're um, you know, more than five years away from retirement, you can't afford not to think about building a group practice. And and I think um, we're going to go through some of the the compelling reasons to do it today. So in no particular order of importance, um, and again, this may be worth taking some notes on or at least listening to this uh, a second time, uh, in no particular order of importance, some of the reasons uh, around um, the validity 
of building a group practice are, are certainly that defensible strategy that I, that I mentioned. You got to build a business that's not dependent upon you. You got to build a business that has enough size and might to have negotiating power. You have to build a business um, that that can be open when you're not physically there, like days and hours. You know, you, you can afford to take a week off for vacation or two weeks off, and and the business doesn't, you know, have dark revenue days. Um, so. This type of a defensible strategy creates greater buying power. It creates greater negotiating power. It minimizes some of the risks around providers and and specific people within the business. If you lose one, the business doesn't go under. It's not dependent upon a rainmaker in it, so to speak. Um, and and that tends to bode really well uh, for business owners. It's it's no different than me and DeWalker, candidly speaking. We're building Polaris as a a multifaceted business for sure, uh, but one that is um, not dependent upon us uh, for for client-facing revenue generation uh, purposes. Uh, many of you have met John Paul and Mark Flock and Aiden Bradley, and we will continue to add client-facing people to our roles, but all of them work in the field with many of you and do an excellent job at it. Uh, and that's nice for me and DeWalker that you know, while we love doing client work, we don't want to be a hamster on a wheel. And it's the same thing for y'all. And when you're building a group that you're able to derive some level of passive income from um, uh, the predominantly the associates who work for you or the minority partners who work for you, um, that gives you a lot of confidence in terms of building the business for the future. So one of the first things I want to touch on is the fact that you have a segment of the graduating uh, new dentist population, the the young uh, dental school and residency graduates that are entering the workforce um, in the American Dental Education Association, or ADEA, has done some interesting studies around this. And when they polled the seniors of the graduating classes back in 2015, just seven years ago, and they asked, hey, how likely are you to, to, uh, to join a group practice or DSO when you graduate? Um, back in 2015, only 12%, about one out of every eight to nine people said that they were mind ready to do that. And when the ADA, ADEA excuse me, asked the same question to those graduating in 2021, the response was, 30% were mine ready to join a group or a DSO. Holy cow. I mean, that's like a 250% increase going from about one of av- every eight or nine uh, graduating seniors to now three out of every 10. That is um, more than a rounding error. It's a mindset shift and one that, I mean, I, I, I the way I think about it, it bodes well if you're building a group practice and, and you have your recruiting hat on. All right. So more and more, I would anticipate this trend to continue, by the way, more and more are mind ready to join a business such as yours if you're building a multi-location group. So from a mindset standpoint, um, uh, this is something that uh, the, the trends are in your favor. 
on. So that's you're, you're not trying to sell the value proposition necessarily of a group practice versus a solo practice. It's becoming more readily apparent and, and more commonplace amongst uh, the graduating seniors. And again, I think that that trend is going to continue. Probably one of the trends that is influencing that is, once again, from the ADEA, the fact that 82% of the graduating uh, class of dentists are carrying some level of student loan debt. They call it educational debt. And for those 82% that are carrying some level of of debt, the average number is $305,000. That is a lot of money uh, in any amount of terms and terminology. Um, It is going to take a while for them to pay that back, even if whatever the current administration is, it continues to forgive some level of, of student loans to it. Okay. So although you can probably make a case that most of the people with dental school debt would graduate out of the income thresholds for that, but that's a sidebar comment. Um, in any event, this is a scenario where the graduating seniors carrying that much in terms of student loan debt, they are justifiably not inclined to want to take on more debt to buy their first practice. They probably are settling down and starting a family. So now they're going to have more mouths to feed. They're probably looking to uh, buy their first home. They want to literally put a roof above their head that's not a one to two bedroom apartment. They may want to finally upgrade the car they're driving. All of this is more than likely going to require some level of personal debt. And if it does, that is going to add to the $300,000 in student loan debt that they have on average coming out of uh, coming out of school. So the fact that while they may technically still be bankable from a lending context, they're arguably more risk averse as it relates to taking on more debt at this point in time before they really get a handle on what their true income potential is going to be from their first or second um, stint as an associate. If you're building a group, and like I said before, there there's a mindset shift that makes them mind ready to join a group, and one of the facets of your group uh, is some pathway to partnership from either a buy-in or an earn-in standpoint where they can become a, an owner in the business without having to own the entire business outright or, or take on another million-dollar loan to buy into it. That's really compelling. Maybe you've got some level of um, student loan debt um, uh, payment or something like that, that or some level of uh, expanded clinical education where they can expand their clinical skill set and do more high value procedures that they can charge more for. You, you start to understand like the the potential revenue mix and the the benefit envelope to some of these uh, young newly minted dentists that can be a driver in terms of helping you source associates. We talked about associate turnover, recruiting uh, and retaining associates, number one problem of every group practice. But if they're mind ready to join your group, and they're carrying that much debt, and you can create a pathway to partnership for them, be it through a buy-in or an earn-in, now you're cooking with gas and you're creating competitive advantage for you that helps you build a sustainable business for the longer haul. 
The third thing around this uh, is that it's, I would call it like an ownership and a lifestyle type of a, a, a context. 51% of the graduating class in 2021, slightly over 51%, was female. And we see that, con- that trend continuing uh, in terms of dental school entrance of the last several years. And females, the, the ADA statistics state that only about 37% of female dentists are in traditional solo private practice versus about 51 to 52% of their male counterparts. And this is um, not a new phenomenon by any stretch of the imagination. I relate this back to my wife, who's an ophthalmologist, and um, she's a, a very successful physician and clinician, been written up as one of Charlotte's top docs multiple times over the last decade or so. I'm kind of partial to her. She is my wife. I think, you know, she's she's pretty, pretty good, pretty, pretty A class there. Um, but the other thing is she has the immense respect of her colleagues and and the adoration of her patients. She is part of a large I and ENT group here in Charlotte. And when she was graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina, um, and, and knew uh, she was going to be a professional and was excited about, you know, mastering her craft and becoming a, a better ophthalmologist. She knew that she didn't want to own a business outright. She didn't want to hire and fire staff. She didn't want to fight with insurance companies. She didn't, you know, really want all of those pressures on her shoulders in addition to doing eye surgery and taking call on weekends and all that other kind of fun stuff that ophthalmologists do, right? So she was looking for a group where she could be a partner, an owner in the business. She could be a successful clinician. She would learn how to perfect and master her craft um, and that she would also be able to have a personal life. And oh, by the way, that personal life was solidly focused around starting a family. And that is completely understandable, totally justifiable, and very commonplace in the world of healthcare services. So this is not unique to ophthalmology or dentistry. It's it's across the board. And females make wonderful clinicians because they typically have better bedside manner than a lot of males do. So when we think about the number of females entering dental school and we think about the percentage, the growing percentage coming out of dental school, it's reasonable to conclude, and we look at the trends that the ADA is uh, analyzed in terms of solo practice, it's completely rational and reasonable to conclude that females are going to make great fits into group practices, especially those that have a pathway to partnership. And it, once again, if you're building a group practice and you you, um, I don't want to say cater to, but you understand that market demographic, you can solve for some of those needs every bit the way that Charlotte Eye, Ear, Nose, and Throat did when Lucy came out of school. 
And I think it can be a wonderful career for uh, young female dentists who can become partners in group practices and know that they get the benefits of being a healthcare professional and a, a master at their craft. And oh, by the way, they can become an owner as well if they choose to, but the business is not 100% dependent upon them. They can have quality of life as well. It really is kind of your cake, having your cake and eating it too from that context. And, and I think this is solidly a trend that points in the favor of uh, group practices and, and away from solo practice ownership in a traditional context, at least. Um, the next trend is one that is not um, is not unique to solo dentistry. It impacts the entire profession, but it impacts solo dentistry uh, much more dramatically, I'll say, and that is top-line margin pressure. So the last ADA study uh, that I saw was from 2006 to 2016. Uh, and they have the Healthcare Policy or Health Policy Institute, HPI, tracks um, a, a, an insurance reimbursement index, I think is what they call it. And what they do is they track insurance reimbursement rates over a period of time, a decade, and they break it down on a state-by-state -state basis. And the ADA's work here, or HPI's work here, indicated that over that 2006 to 2016, the index declined by about 17%. So you had cost of living increases across that period of time of some amount and, and insurance reimbursement rates going in the exact opposite direction. In fact, only three states that they followed showed an increase at all in insurance reimbursement rates, but the aggregate index declined by strong double digits, 17%. Put another way, insurance reimbursement rates are declining on a relative basis. So if that is creating top-line margin pressure, because most solo practices have no negotiating potential against uh, no negotiating potential for all intents and purposes against insurance companies it makes it hard to harder to maintain the top line and if you are in a higher cost or an increasing cost environment the way we find ourselves right now then you've got an increasing cost matrix with a declining reimbursement index that puts the margin squeeze on the owner operator and where does that appear well, it appears in declining uh, take-home income, and that's a challenging position to be in. Group practices are equally susceptible to that. Don't get me wrong, but if you have a group practice, you you do have more volume and and the ability to negotiate insurance reimbursement rates at least a little bit to, to hopefully tread water, if not improve them. Um, a little bit. And, and the enterprise level DSOs are great at doing this because they know that when they look at a payer mix report uh, and an insurance uh, report from any target that they're thinking about acquiring, they can overlay their fee schedule against what the seller was getting and know that that's going to be an immediate pickup on the revenue line. So group practices have that negotiating ability. We talk about negotiating ability a lot from the cost of supplies and lab and you know, things like legal and accounting costs and employee benefit costs and some of that kind of stuff. Yeah, there is the the size and volume in terms of reducing some of the cost matrix, but there 
the revenue line is is when we talk about less and it's equally compelling in terms of the validity of building a group practice. Um, the next trend I would point you to is what I would call buyer behavior. Uh, and and again, the ADA has done uh, some good studies on this and and they talk about, you know, the, the, I hate to throw this word out, the millennials, the younger consumer mindset, the younger uh, patient mindset. And specifically, they make uh, healthcare services buying decisions the way they do in terms of buying almost anything else. And that is from a convenience and a, and a price transparency standpoint. So convenience, uh, in terms of buyer behavior at least, think about it in terms of days and hours of availability and if you were only open 8 a.m to 5 p.m three and a half days a week that is super convenient to you but it might not be convenient to them it could be convenient to what is the majority of your patient base right now but that patient base is going to change and evolve over time what is your patient base going to look like 10 years from now well, probably it's going to be a lot of people who are millennials now that are going to be more, I don't know, middle age or whatever you would call them, um, you know, 10 years down the road. And, and if that's a consumer driven mindset and a buyer behavior change, then are you, you know, how are you going to stagger the hours of availability for your practice? Well, if it's a, if you're the solo owner of a solo practice, the answer to that is not to work more days and hours, Perrin. Thanks a whole heck of a lot. The answer to this is building a multi-location group that is open multiple days and potentially even weekends uh, for several hours, expanded days and, and some level of weekend hours to be available when the consumer wants to access care. And that is critically, critically important when building a group. It also allows you to take greater advantage of your fixed costs. So this is a, a super compelling reason that may not be a pressure point today in your business, but again, we're thinking 10 years down the road. What do we want the business to look like? What's the consumer mindset going to be? And how do we kind of skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where the puck is right now? That's an old Wayne Gretzky term. All right. So I would tell you that that buyer behavior is something that you're you're may not you may not be experiencing presently, but it it will start to create a, a more seismic shift in the years to come for sure. Mm. You know, the other opportunity here, candidly, is that there are a lot of senior dentists who are going to be exiting the profession in the next three to five years. Again, the ADA has done some nice work around this. We know that the profession is, uh, I would call it top heavy right now. There have been a lot of people that held on through the pandemic. Um, a lot of them did exit in 2021, but there are a lot more that are in their mid to late 60s. They are going to be retiring imminently. There are going to be practices to acquire if you are building a group. So you're going to have a lot of at-bats and a lot of opportunities to uh, expand your footprint. If that's what you're looking to do. So knowing that, um, this would be the time to get your you know, your financial house in order. And we talked about getting clarity around the, um, the the debt funding piece of it to have a hunting license to be able to go after some of those practices uh, that may come on the market or even trying to reach some of those practices before they come onto the market. So thinking in terms of that growth strategy in the next three to five years that sets the business up 
uh, to be more defensible and, and ensure its prosperity 10 years out is critically important. Um, obviously, the, the decline in solo practice we talked about last time, uh, and I teased it just a second ago, um, I think one of the ADA webinars from the beginning part of this year talked about uh, for the first time ever in 2021, the year ended with less than 50% uh, of the ADA membership uh, being a solo dentist in a single location, the way it has been historically, that number is about 46% in, in 2021. So that trend is going to continue, maybe not the, to the dramatic degree that it changed in 2021, but suffice to say, as we're thinking about uh, the, the coming years, that's going to be, uh, th there's no putting the toothpaste back in the tube, as we would say. It is going to be a profession that is going to be group practice oriented. That doesn't mean they're all private equity backed, you know, multi-hundred locations, a lot of doctor founded debt funded groups and partnerships. Uh, and there's compelling reasons to do that. But this is a really an irreversible trend. Um, the majority are now uh, involved in group practices in one way, shape, manner, or form. The majority of the ADA membership, I mean. So I'm going to wrap this episode up with a thought for you. And that is along the lines of risk and reward. So what you want to think about here is that do the risks of building and growing a group outweigh the risks of staying solo? Let me ask that question once again. Do the risks of growing and building a group outweigh the risks of staying solo. If your horizon to exit is short-term, three to five years, then you can make a compelling reason to just improve the business, maximize the value and exit. And if it's a solo location, then, you know, good on you. But if you are a mid-career, you've got 10 years before you're going to, to retire, 10 years or more, you're going to have to give me a pretty hard push and a lot of compelling reasons to say that building a group is not in your best interest. Is it risky? It absolutely is. Is it the journey for everybody? It's not. I mean, and, and your success is not guaranteed. These businesses are challenging. Um, it's a lot of sleepless nights. But if you think about being a solo dentist in a single location in another 10 to 15 years, what does that business look like as it's still, for all intents and purposes, 100% dependent upon you? That's a scary, risky proposition. And I would tell you that if that's what you're staring at 10 to 15 years out, let's double down and think a second time about possibly building a group. You want to think about it from having 100% of control of the outcomes in that solo practice today, be it clinically, culturally, you know, otherwise. You, you, the business is available and open when you're there within those four walls, and you probably know just about everything that's going on. You have 100%, for all intents and purposes, you have 100% control there. Building a group practice that's not 100% dependent upon you and where you are not in 100% control all the time, even if you are 100% owner of that group, this is something that uh, is definitely riskier. But I would tell you that if you're going to be practicing dentistry for the next 10 to 15 years or more, it's riskier to stay a solo practice. 
the risk to build a group are less than staying where you are as a solo practitioner. I know that's a departure from the way we talked about things in the past, um, but it's something that as our future evolves and changes, um, I really believe that it's something that we all need to consider. I hope I've given you a lot to think about on today's uh, podcast. And if you do have questions about it, you can always send me an email at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. I'd encourage you to go back and take a second listen to this episode. It's kind of heady. I wanted to think about it um, before we uh, I did the recording on it. Um, and hopefully I've presented a, a coherent type of a thought process for you to kind of follow through. There was a lot in there. You may want to go back and take a couple of notes. Like I say, if you want to talk further about it, you know how to reach me. Feel free to drop me a line. Uh, I probably take ten to five to ten different inquiries a week from our, uh, our 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 followers out there, and I appreciate everybody being in the audience. Certainly appreciate all the the kind words, compliments, uh, and ratings that we get, and we love it when you share the uh, podcast with your colleagues. I can always tell when we've added a few new subscribers to our podcast, and the reason I can tell is. We typically release these shows on Tuesday. So when I look at the downloads, Tuesday is the biggest day of the week, typically, except there's like a random Friday where we'll have an equally large number of downloads. And I'll know that somebody discovered our podcast and they downloaded all the previous episodes uh, onto their phone or or, uh, uh, computer or something like that and are going back and listening to them. So thank you all so much for sharing the show amongst your colleagues. Uh, And thank you so much for the kind words that we get. Stick around. We'll be back and I'll see you on the next episode.